yeah, it clearly says that in the context of all that God has said around it. So for you to understand what that one verse means, it means you're going to have to bring other verses to bear on that. And when you fill in the other verses around it, now you're going to be able to interpret what that particular verse means. And you're doing that whenever you read the Bible. If you don't bring enough of the Bible to bear on that one particular weird thing, right? You remember the, the goofy illustration, the guy who flips the Bible open, he puts his finger down, he just reads, you know, and Judas went and hung himself. Right? You ever heard this story? And then the guy closes it again, and he's, he's looking for a verse for the day, you know. He doesn't really care for that one, but, you know, he flips it open again, and he puts his finger down and says, go thou and do likewise. You know, it's like, oh, great. You know, how do you, how do you interpret that, right? Well, there was a context for all that, right? There was, there's a bigger picture for your life. God's got a purpose for who you're supposed to be. So it matters how we do our systematic theology. Uh, look at this with me, because I think this is a challenge for us, an undercurrent that works against the doctrines of grace in your outline there. What wages war with the doctrines of grace are two unbiblical but common to man beliefs. This is very common. It's in your veins, whether you ever showed up to shoot it in your veins or not. You've been breathing the air of this. It's in you. All right. Number one, the belief in the inherent goodness of man. Right? I mean, there's a few people that you and I are convinced are really, really, really bad people. But then I could stick some other people up here, and you, you know, those are pretty good, those, that's pretty good folks right there. You know, I've known so-and-so my whole life. My aunt so-and-so, oh my goodness. Um, so we've got this, we qualify people as there's an inherent goodness about them. If there's inherent goodness, well, now we're speaking about ability in them. So you assign goodness to the human beings in general, you have given them abilities that are going to argue with the doctrines of grace. All right, listen, look at this quote from Boyce and Riken. They say, the Howard newspaper organization has its logo, a lighthouse, beneath which are the words, give the people the light and they will find their way, right? Big assumption right there. The idea is that people make foolish mistakes and bad decisions because they do not know the right way, right? Stop for a second. Whenever you read the newspaper and you look at moral decay in cities and you hear the remedy is typically what? Education, right? It's, it's assuming that if you just give people the right knowledge, they'll do the right thing with it, right? I was watching the Olympics last night and there was a big thing before the start of the Olympics uh, about Adolf Hitler and London and you might see that, well it was moving it was effective man uh, how many guys know that Hitler had a little bit of knowledge this guy knew some stuff he was persuasive, he understood the nature of people, how to motivate them this guy had knowledge but what he did was horrific right? so, because in the heart of man is not this thing if you just educate it, it'll grow up and do the right thing He says, show it to them and they will follow it. However, that's not the way the Bible describes our condition spiritually. When Jesus was in the world, he was the world's light. They hated the light and tried to put it out. They they crucified the lighthouse. This is the verdict. Light has come into the world, but men loved the darkness instead of the light because their deeds are evil. 
be convinced, and I'm just grabbing a couple little thoughts here, there's systematically the Bible overwhelmingly would tell you that the heart of man is corrupt. The condition of man is sinful. It's not God-oriented. Number two, uh, the biblically uninformed view of human freedom. There's this idea, and you hear people come to the defense of some of their ideas with even God is presented as the one who cannot violate man's free will. So it's almost as though free will was here first, and then God showed up. And then God had to play by free will's rules. And so, you know, God can't even violate your free will. Okay, I'm going to tamper with that a little bit today, but if you read the system of the Bible, how many of you guys recognize God's violating wills all over the place? As a matter of fact, the Bible clearly teaches that God does whatever he wants. So anytime you turn around and say, well, you know, God can't, you should pretty much stop theologically and really reconsider what you're about to say. He's God. He doesn't play by somebody else's rules. He's not under the control of our ideas that a man created about human freedom and then imposed them upon God in the Bible. So that's, that's a philosophy that man has that he brings to the Bible. Look at this thought in your outline there by R.C. Sproul. He says, In the judgment of the magisterial reformers themselves, one's view of the will and its state of bondage is absolutely vital to one's understanding of the entire Christian faith. Luther himself said, This is the hinge on which our discussion turns, the crucial issue between us. Our aim is simply to investigate what ability free will has, in what respect it it is the subject of divine action, and how it stands related to the grace of God. If we know nothing of these things, listen, we shall know nothing whatsoever of Christianity. For I am ignorant... For if I am ignorant of the nature, extent, and limits of what I can and must do in reference to God, I shall be equally ignorant and uncertain of the nature, extent, and limits of what God can and will, and by the way, must do in me. We need, therefore, to have in mind a clear-cut distinction between God's power and ours, God's work and ours if we would live a godly life. All right, if you just took those last couple of sentences and chewed on those, you would be able to walk away from this class realizing why the doctrines of grace are so important. If you are mistaken about what you are contributing into your salvation, you will continue that mistake into your daily routines of sanctification. You will live You will live your life with an exalted view of your role, with an exalted view of your contribution, with a God-limiting view of what you must do in order to let God become God. That's what life without the doctrines of grace produces. So these are important doctrines. These are not just for egghead thinkers. This is for you when you get up in the morning and you figure out, yesterday was a bad day, I did X, Y, and Z, Yet again, I failed at this, 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 and this. What, what can I expect from God? What, what can I expect? God is so sick of me messing this and doing that, and I'm not, and I'm not, and I'm not. I've become so man-centered in everything I think about the Christian life. Instead of stopping and realizing God's the center, and God does things 
that don't require me to provide something to him. He's the initiator and the mover. That's the doctrines of grace that puts me in a place to be able to use the illustration I used several weeks ago for God to play the, the trump card of grace. At any moment, God can just decide, in your life, I am now going to do this. Well, but, but I didn't do this, and I didn't have enough faith, and I didn't work this way, and I didn't repent of that, and I didn't take care of this person and be responsible in this area. Well, be careful that you don't put God on a human leash. See, the doctrines of grace take God off the leash and let him be God exactly the way he's revealed himself to be God. All right, let, let me walk us down what I'm going to call the pathway of the whole counsel of God to get us to this topic this morning of irresistible grace. And, and I think it's important kind of to, to take a pathway. The, the tulip provides a pathway. Right? You're walking this path. Each, each one of these doctrines is saying something that when you arrive at irresistible grace, having walked that path, irresistible grace makes sense. If you just kind of drop into irresistible grace out of nowhere, uh, you, come, you have a little harder time getting it. Right? I remember years ago, I, I, went to, I went to Chicago for us. I'd gone up to Chicago a couple of times. And I, I don't know if it was the first time or the second time I went, but I flew in one of the times. Right? So I fly into O'Hare. I don't, you know, I'm, I don't know what direction. I was in high school, teen, uh, senior high guy. Coming into O'Hare, I don't even know what direction I came from. Plane lands, we get in the car, I am totally disoriented. I don't know where I'm going. East, west, I don't know where anything is. Are we near the city, away from the city? I'm, I'm completely lost in this. I've never been there before. Another time, drove to Chicago from here. So, you know, when we got to the outskirts of Chicago, you know, we took this exit, got on that interstate, passed that building, went past this uh, mall. There, there were landmarks so that when I finally stopped and got out of the car, I kind of knew where I was because I saw what took me there. Look, irresistible grace is kind of that way. Much of these doctrines and the doctrines of grace are kind of that way. You just don't want to just drop into them. You want to see how you get there through the system of Scripture because part of what's going to happen is you, you're, the Bible is going to teach you certain things that along the way are going to put you in a position to say, irresistible grace has got to truly be what it says it is. But if you abandon the other doctrines, you're going to be in trouble trying to interpret that, right? So let me walk us through a little bit of the systematic approach that gets us here. There's implications of the doctrine of depravity, right? The T and tulip, total depravity, right? We studied that. Peter taught, brought us through that. You've been reading in your books the doctrine of total depravity. Well, there's, there's implications of that. If total depravity is what the Bible teaches, well, first man is not inherently good. If man is totally depraved, then he's not inherently good. And one of the primary things, I think you catch this, catch this doctrine of Jesus interacting with people when the, when the man walks up to Jesus and he says, good teacher, that's his introduction. And he begins to ask a question and he gets his legs cut off by Jesus. Why, why do you call me good? There's none good but God. Right? I mean, he he does a little theological adjustment in that moment. Now, he's not saying, I'm not good. He's just asking, do you know how to use that term? You're throwing that term around loosely, buddy. You, you calling me God? You'd be right if you're doing that. You'd be right for you to call me good, but you seem to throw that around for anybody to wear. So the world fell from God, and in, a, in a, its posture looks like Adam and Eve in the garden. Right? Do, you, do you recognize God didn't sit in the corner, arms folded, waiting for man, did he? You guys have screwed up royally. Let's just see how long it takes for those 
to come home. You know, no, they're not coming home, okay? Adam and Eve are not returning. They have fallen. They're hiding from God. Their, their understanding of life is, is now self-preservation. We, we got to do what's right for us. Get away from God. He's not the source. They disobeyed God. God's got to come to them. Right? Man lives in a condition where he's not God-centered. Man is man-centered. And total depravity is a condition in which we live that we need to get rescued from. And the difficulty of total depravity is we don't have the ability to rescue ourselves. Right? We're, we're in a little bit of a jam here. Right? Man's inability to change his condition. And that's the implication of the doctrine of total depravity. Look at this thought from Packer and Johnson. Is our salvation holy of God? Or does it ultimately depend on something that we do for ourselves? Those who say the latter, as the Arminians later did, thereby deny man's utter helplessness in sin. Right? Does the Bible teach that man is utterly helpless in his sinful condition? Right? Systematically, yes, I think you'd have to say it does. Arminianism was indeed, in reformers' eyes, a renunciation of New Testament Christianity in favor of New Testament Judaism. For, listen, to rely on oneself for faith is no different in principle than relying on oneself for works. And the one is as unchristian and anti-Christian as the other. Right? Depravity, inability informs my condition. So if God backs off and folds his arms and says... I'll come to you, and I'll be gracious to you, and I'm ready to be favorable in your life. But you're going to have to take a step toward me. You're going to have to do something. I'm, listen, I'm gracious. I'm God. I'm more than willing to get involved in your mess. I'm, I'm willing to forgive and overlook all that's been done, but, but you, you're going to have to come to me. Man is unable, not capable. He's not coming. That's the system of the Bible. Right in your outline there. If man were to ever escape his condition of being, listen, this this, this is a terminology that's come to to mind off the top of my head. Dead in sin, right? Dead, blind, in darkness, darkened in their understanding and excluded from the life of God, hostile in mind and unable to submit our minds to God. This is all Bible verses I'm just sticking together. Enslaved to sin having a heart of stone, right? It's unchangeable. It's not going to go anywhere different. It's a stone. It's a rock. It's not going to just all of a sudden morph and mold and get into the shape of God. That's the condition of man is in. Then something must happen to us that is not self-generated. Something must intrude into our lives to save us. That's the implications of total depravity. If man is unable and will not be able to achieve or earn God's favorable response to him, then God will have to find another reason to save man. He finds that reason in himself, his own characteristics of love and mercy, which gives way to the doctrine of unconditional election, right? Okay, so you're walking down this path. Man in this condition 
He's unable, he's unwilling, he's enslaved. You know, I, I love the picture here. If you have any hint that there's any ability here, it's like, okay, not only are, is your optic nerve severed, but you're in darkness anyway, so even if you could see, you couldn't see. I mean, it's like the Bible's trying to convince you. You're in a real pickle here. And so God's going to have to pierce the darkness with his light, and then even if you turn the light on around, if your optic nerves are severed, you still can't see. So he's going to have to do something to your ability to see. God's got to do that, right? So God comes in, intruding in, and if, if God were to do any of that toward his creation, and since we are in a condition that we can't provide God with motivation to do that, God's got to have another reason to do it. But what's the reason in God to do it? His love and his mercy being expressed. Otherwise, you realize his love and mercy would never be seen? All that would be seen and known of God, which actually is a part of who God is, would be his righteousness and his judgment upon fallen creation. But God says, no, I will have mercy on whom I have mercy. I will express my mercy. So God, for reasons in himself, I mean, he says this when he, when he takes Israel to be his own nation. I didn't choose you because you were greater than all the other nations. As a matter of fact, you were the least of all the nations. I just wanted to make a statement by choosing the least, the least impressive thing I could find amongst the nations. But I loved you because I loved you. That's what Deuteronomy says. I set my love on you because I loved you. Right? There's no reaching into who you are for God to become motivated. Right? Well, then why does God love? Because he's got this purpose going on in election. And so that was, moves us from total depravity. We find a God who interacts with a totally depraved people and he steps into their life and he does something on their behalf. Why does he do it? Because he chooses to. And that's where we get to the you, unconditional election. No condition in man was met by God electing us. God chose from his own heart to do something. Um, let me just give you a couple of verses here and we'll just kind of roll through them quick. In God's dealing with man, he is fulfilling his purpose. I use that word a lot because the Bible uses it a lot. It kind of lets us in on some behind-the-scenes grand scheme of God that God is doing right now. He's doing it right now. He's doing it in your life on a daily basis. There's something called the purpose of God that's flowing from Genesis to Revelation, and God's always about that. And everything that's going on that you and I see, he's kind of behind the scenes with a master plan called the purpose of God, right? Acts 2.23, this man, this message that gets preached on the day of Pentecost by Peter, this man, referring to Jesus, delivered over by the predetermined plan and foreknowledge of God, you nailed to a cross by the hands of godless men and put him to death. Well, there's a lot of theology right there. There's a bunch of guys who in the evil of their own heart, and you watch the passion of the Christ, or you watch a movie, and you get affected by the emotion of a bunch of men who did a horrible thing to the most right, innocent human being on, in, in history. And these people jump in and do this horrible thing. And then you step behind the curtain, and you see that God was doing something while evil men were doing something. And you find out this was a predetermined plan of God these evil people to do exactly what they did. A little bit later in Acts chapter 4, there's a great prayer meeting going on. This is the prayer they pray. They lifted their voices to God with one accord and said, O Lord, 
It is you who made the heaven and the earth and the sea. Okay, now listen, before you get into this, right, you're about to see why the doctrines of grace matter when you're a fledgling Christian movement. People are being killed. There's martyrdom taking place. There's threats. They don't have property. They're moving from house to house. They don't know how their needs are going to get met. Right? This is a desperate condition of life. They've gathered together for prayer. Listen to what informs what they pray. Listen to what sustains them in the day when life feels horribly uncertain and threatening. Oh, Lord, it is you who made the heaven and the earth and the sea and all that is in them, who by the Holy Spirit through the mouth of our father David, your servant, said, why do the Gentiles rage and the peoples devise futile things? The kings of the earth took their stand and the rulers were gathered together against the Lord and against his Christ. So they're acknowledging that I'm living in a world and we're living in a world where the people's hearts are against God. The purpose of man is against the purpose of God. And so these young Christians are feeling the heat of that. These people are going to be against us in the way in which we live. But we remind ourselves that behind the scenes there's another thing taking place here. So even though we're being threatened as we walk out into the streets and we're not sure whether that guy over there is going to recognize us, take us in, lose our life, grab our family, we don't know. But behind the scenes, we take comfort in the doctrines of grace. This has been the history of man opposing God. Look in verse 27, though. For truly in this city there were gathered together against your holy servant Jesus, whom you anointed, both Herod and Pontius Pilate, along with the Gentiles and the peoples of Israel, to do whatever your hand and your purpose predestined to occur. God's sovereign control of his creation. God's working here. And, and if you catch this, this will release you into so many relational struggles armed with the doctrines of grace. Most of us think that if, if our life is going to go right, we need to make sure we get around the right people. Avoid the wrong people, get around the right people. Create good circumstances for us, get around the right people. Uh, if, if we're married and our life is going to go right, then we need our, our spouse to be the right spouse and to respond the right way and to do right things. See, if I were to say, do you, do you believe that the purpose of God is needing for everybody to do the right thing? How many of y'all would say, yeah. Right, theologically, that's, that's not a good spot, right? Practically speaking, some of us live there. We're thinking life can't improve until that person gets it right. I can't exist. I can't experience fulfillment until that person, and maybe that person too, until they get it right. And so we, we're depressed because why? Because we're a little bit informed by the doctrine of total depravity. <laughs> so we're kind of knowing they're not going to get it right. They're going to stay pretty similar to what they are. And so I'm, I'm, I'm hopeless now, right, because I've put my hope in here. Now, these guys are being threatened by people who are against God. These are not people who are thinking about, hey, we should probably try to fulfill God's plan. No, these are people who are opposed to God's plan by their lives, and yet they did whatever God had purposed and planned for them to do, even the sinful activities the nails going in the wrist, ordained by God. It wasn't a moment. It took the, I think it took the, the apostles a little bit of time to figure this out. 
This was don't pull your hair out. Everything's failed, right? They were that way for a short period of time. And now by the time they start to preach this and pray this, they're getting a revelation that God was controlling all of this all the time, right? The doctrines of grace matter in how you interpret your life. Exodus 9, 16. God speaks to Pharaoh when he says, but for this purpose, I have raised you up, right? I've given you a job, Pharaoh. You got a name, dude. You showed up in the position of history where you are because of me to show you my power so that my name may be proclaimed in all the earth. Right, big bad dude, want to kill everybody, want to take out all the nations, want to hold people captive. Yeah, you're bad. You, you just exist so that I could let you be this big in people's eyes so that I could prove to them what big really is. That's why you came along, buddy. Right, so you're trying to interpret, oh my gosh, that's the worst president in the history of Egypt or America or whatever, right? This guy is horrible. All right, the doctrines of grace inform something about how you're going to respond to that. Listen, America has never had, never had, watch all the Fox News you want, never had anything like Pharaoh. Never had anything like Pharaoh. And God stands and says, I raised him up because I was doing something. Now, I was doing something wasn't obvious to the people of Israel because they were crying out in anguish over the conditions this man had created. They were enslaved. It was horrible. But God was working a purpose. Behind the scenes, there was a sovereign God in control of these things. Isaiah 44. Yeah, read this and go into chapter 45. It'll kind of blow your mind a little bit about this man, Cyrus. Speaking of God, it says, God who who says of Cyrus, he is my shepherd. Cyrus is a Persian king. He's a heathen. It's not some guy running around following, eager to know God. As a matter of fact, a little bit later in the next chapter, it says, I know I took you by the hand here, though it says in this verse here, he is my shepherd and he shall fulfill all my purpose. All my purpose. That guy right there, who does, in the next chapter, who's going to introduce you to him in a little more detail, who doesn't even know me. You don't even know me, Cyrus. I've taken you by the hand, and I've called you by name, and you will fulfill all my purpose. Listen. Somewhere in here, as we lead to the irresistible grace issue, is God's purpose a certainty, or is God's purpose a possibility? Right? Cyrus is not cooperating with God, but yet he is going to fulfill all of God's purpose, every bit of it. Right? So when you come to irresistible grace in just a moment here, is God's purpose a certainty? When God purposes, he will certainly fulfill his purpose. His purpose will always get accomplished. Or is God's purpose a potential? God had a good idea. God had a desire. God would like to see that happen. But you know, there's a lot of other variables here like that big, nasty other God out there, human free will, that's just waiting to cut God off at his knees. Romans 9, verse 11. Though they were not yet born and had done nothing, either good or bad, in order that God's purpose of election might continue, right? This thing is just moving along here. Not 
because of works, but because of his call. She was told the older will serve the younger. I'm pretty sure somebody's will got violated right there. The older will serve the younger. The the younger is supposed to serve the older, but, you know, God's sovereign purpose, mm, switching you guys around. Jacob, you're the man. Uh, Esau, you're not the man. Uh, You're probably not interested in that deal, but, you know, I've got a purpose I'm fulfilling, and so that's the way it's going to be. And and I'm going to make that choice based on something in me before the twins are born before they've done anything good or bad, before I look down the corridor of time and decided, which one do I want to choose, Jacob or Esau? Well, well, Jacob's going to have faith toward me, so let me choose Jacob. Does anybody see that in the text? Peter covered this last week. Right, this is not how God chooses. Matter of fact, if he had chosen, he doesn't have a good choice here, right? Esau or Jacob, left foot or right foot, which foot do you want to shoot yourself in? I mean, Jacob's, you know, He's a real winner, right? You remember this guy? But God looks, and God has a purpose in himself that he says, I will fulfill that purpose, and I will choose Jacob for reasons before they've done anything good or bad, before they've done anything to offer any motivation toward me. I have a purpose, and I will fulfill that purpose, and I'm going to do it through Jacob. Psalm 57, verse 2. This is where this begins to live in our lives. I cry out to God most high, to God who fulfills his purpose for me. Right? There's a God who's at work. Do you believe he's at work fulfilling a purpose in your life? Now, we quote verses like Romans 8, 28. Do we see where this comes from? We know that for those who love God, all things work together for good. For those who are called according to his purpose, according to his purpose. This is the same purpose that's been in the Garden of Eden all the way to Revelation, according to his purpose. Your life is, has got a connection and association by God's grace with his purpose. And so this is not, this is not just a feel-good verse. You know, life's not going well. You know, and I, I mean, you hear people don't even know God stand up and say things like, well, you know, everything's got a purpose. Why? Because there's some strange, mysterious, impersonal force called fate that gives everything a purpose? No, because there's a sovereign God who has created every life and he's at work in every life and every circumstances that causes this event, this moment in your life to have a purpose. Ephesians 1 verse 11. In him we have obtained an inheritance. Right? Does that sound certain or potential? Come on. Sounds pretty certain, right? In him we have obtained an inheritance, having been predestined according to the purpose of him who works all things according to the counsel of his will. Right, so the, what you and I have in our lives is not just this idea that there's potentially this possibility that maybe something could exist from God for us if we'll just walk the straight and narrow. If we'll just do our part, God's already postured himself to do so much on our behalf, if we'll just do our part. Now, this, this is a certainty because all things are being worked according to this purpose that existed before you and I ever came along and did anything. God had already purposed in our lives to do what he was going to do. All right, so this brings us to the doctrine of irresistible grace. Question, is God's grace given in saving man, is it resistible or irresistible? Let me just tweak the question a little bit. If God acts in a saving way toward an individual, will the end result be that they are saved? 
if God acts towards someone to save them, at the end of the day, will that person be saved? Right, do you understand why we walk down the road we walk down to get here? Because if I stripped all that we just said away and I just gave you a thimble full, what the Bible says in those areas, if we stripped all that away and I just jumped into this question, you, you would thrust human beings way up into the equation here and you'd, you'd wonder, well, well, you know, I know God's desire, you know, God's desire, but then there would be the human component and we would, we would put it at a level, a big level, and it would, be, it would become in our theology a determining component. God can offer and offer and offer all he wants, but the weakest link in the chain determine whether the chain breaks or not. And man's got a contribution to make that ultimately will determine whether or not God's ever comes true or not. It's really bad theology. It makes God man-sized and man-limited. Right? Think with me here. I, I wrote some of this out in your outline. You can take it and chew on it. Note. To believe that God can act in a way intended to accomplish something particular and yet fail to accomplish what he intended would have implications that would spread throughout how we interpret the Bible and how we understand the future of our own lives. Right? Do you see that? If God's plans are ultimately determined by our willingness, our intelligence, and our self-determined ability, then that will have some severe repercussions on how you interpret many passages and will also determine how you are able to find peace and hope in the promises of God. Because the promises of God, as rich as they are, they're only as good as you are. They're only as good as your ability to grab them and make them something. Apart from your ability, they got no ability in your life. That's a bad spot, isn't it? about attitude-wise? The Bible sets up, makes many comments in the New Testament about how God has drained humanity of the ability to boast. There's one thing that's offensive to a holy, perfect God. It is an arrogant, prideful man who in any moment could turn around to God and say, but I did this. I I believed mustard seed, watermelon seed, baby. You know you're impressed with me. If there's any achievement on our behalf that you and I can locate in us, well, then we have an unavoidable, and it is there, and you can try and deny it all you want, but we have an unavoidable ability to compare ourselves with one another. And if I'm doing better than you are, I got legit grounds for boasting, unless it's all of grace. And then my only boast can be in God. There's no way I can look at you and think I'm superior to you just the grace of God that's done or accomplished anything in my life. It creates, creates the humility of God amongst the people of God. That next little thought there. Do we recognize, this, this, probably we'll tweak this out some other time, but let me just set it before you. Do we recognize that when the Bible says things like this, only the one who endures to the end will be saved, right? So there's a highlighting here of human contribution, human activity, right? We'll tweak this out in the last couple of weeks. It is not telling you that your endurance is a solo responsibility that is uninfluenced by God. Right? That's important. God's messing with your life for good. He's messing with your life. He's behind the scenes. The Bible says it's God who's at work in you to will and to do of his good pleasure. So the Bible can require us to have faith to the end while also informing us systematically 
that our faith is not a solo project, that God is uninvolved with influencing in such a way that he is the ultimate sustaining force. Right? So there's, there is, the Bible calls for, and there's going to be a bunch of demands on human effort in the Bible, and we need to explain those in these doctrines of grace. So God calls for us to have faith until the end. Okay. The Bible nowhere teaches, though, that there's this faith thing that God just, that man inherently of himself has this, this commodity called faith, and then God stands back and eats his nails and freaks out and says, Ooh, make, make, sure, make sure you take care of that faith to the end. It's, it's got to make it all the way to the end here. See, it's, it's great that you got it right now, but, but when you cross the finish line, in the end will you have faith. Only the one who endures to the end is going to be saved. So you got to take care of your faith, all right? Don't lose your faith. This is totally up to you, man. I've done so many great things for you. There's so much grace available, so much forgiveness. All of heaven lays waiting for you, but you, you got to make sure you make it to the end. Please, I don't know if they're going to make it. Do you guys think they're going to make it? I mean, is this anybody's image of God? If you understand the doctrine of total depravity, that's exactly, matter of fact, it would be hopeless. God wouldn't even be wasting his time trying to chew on his fingernails, wondering whether anybody's going to make it to the end. He would know. If I surrender faith into your life and I stop touching it, in a fallen world that's darkened and man's understanding is darkened and his optic nerves are cut and he's dead in his trespasses and sins, if I gave faith over to that, it wouldn't endure for another five minutes, much less take you to the end. So I'm going to have to stay involved. If faith is ever going to make it to the end, I'm going to have to stay with my hands on your faith. Right? All right, I'm going to, I'm going to go a few minutes over, not too many. All right, First Peter, you guys will remember these verses. First Peter, which, by the way, I can remember a number of years ago. If you guys remember, we studied through Romans a bunch of years ago, if you guys were here. I can remember teaching through parts of Romans and having people go, what? 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 This doctrines of grace, what? what on earth? What are you saying? It's like, well, it's what we've always been saying. I just don't know if you heard it when we said it the first time. Matter of fact, like a year before we did that, we did a series out of Ephesians called Grace from Beginning to End. It was really, it was just a regurgitated, refashioned form of the doctrines of grace. But are you gonna, you're going you're gonna to remember some of this from 1 Peter. Right, look at 1 Peter chapter 1, verse 3. This is, this is, we're going to go behind the scenes here. We're going to see God messing with faith. Verse 3. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. According to his great mercy, he has caused us to be born again. Right? Do, you, do you see sovereign election? You see the regenerative work of God from God, by God? Right? All right look, it's in these verses. According to his great mercy, he has caused us to be born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead, to an inheritance that is imperishable, undefiled, and unfading, kept in heaven for you who, by God's power, are being guarded through faith for a salvation ready to be revealed in the last time. You see that? There's something coming, and all along the way, it's God's power that's guarding you along the way. You're going to inherit this by faith. Faith is going to be the connection point. But that faith is not just your activity in the realm of faith. It is God's power that's tampering with your faith all along the way. And so he begins to explain that now. 
verse 6. In this you rejoice, right? This whole process that God's created, and he's going to get you to the end. You rejoice in that. That's great. But for now, a little while, if necessary, you have been grieved by various trials. And by the way, it is necessary. It's necessary. So that the tested genuineness of your faith, more precious than gold that perishes, though it's tested by fire, may be found to result in the praise and glory and honor at the revelation of Jesus Christ. So at the end, Christ is going to be revealed. Not you're going to get to the end, and you're going to have no faith that's going to have evaporated and failed, and then that's going to result in the praise and the glory of Christ being revealed. Does anybody think that's going to result in the praise and glory of Christ being revealed at the end? No, that, that would make a statement about God failed. So your faith is going to endure. And, and when it does endure, and you cross the finish line, and you raise your hands... And there's a celebration at the end of the race. It's going to be a declaration that the power of God guarded you the whole way and the power of God was successful in making you get there. Verse 8. Though you have not seen him, you love him. Though you do not see him now, you believe in him and rejoice with joy that is inexpressible and filled with glory, obtaining the outcome of your faith, the salvation of your souls. Right? Does this sound like a potential or a certainty? You're going to obtain this. You're going to cross the finish line. There's going to be praise and celebration at the greatness of Jesus Christ because all along the way, God was guarding your faith. Well, how was he doing that? Well, he was putting you in fire. He was putting you in this circumstance where faith would get revealed and junk would float up and you'd become desperate and you'd cling to God, and you'd, you'd stop depending upon human ability and human effort because you're in way over your head, and something's failing around you that you can't fix, and you don't have the power to talk your way out of it or pay your way out of it or just work harder and make it happen. So what do you have to do? I've got to depend on God. God has put me in a position where I've got to let God be God, and I look to him, and my faith is invigorated, and it stays in God, and it takes one more step, and then one more step, and then one more step. Listen, this is God sovereignly ruling over the events of our lives, but with a, with a behind-the-scenes reason. He wants our faith to endure to the end, right? I mean, there is that question. I put Luke 18, 8. When the Son of Man comes, will he find faith on the earth? I mean, the Bible asks these questions. Be careful how you try and answer them. You answer them from man's standpoint, and you scratch your head and go, you know, I don't know. I mean, I'm, golly, total depravity. I'm, I'm, I struggle. I don't know. Will will God find faith on the earth when he shows up and we get towards the end here and he shows up? Man, I don't, based on us, he ain't gonna find nothing, man. We're gonna all quit. Well, Satan, the baddest dude on the block, decided to take Peter to task and wanted to sift him like wheat. You remember that? And Jesus got involved behind the scenes and let, he let Peter know about his behind the scenes activity. You understand the rest of us don't get told this kind of stuff. Satan's demanded permission to sift you like wheat, Peter. But I have prayed for you. I've been behind the scenes. I have tampered with your faith. And when you turn, not, oh my gosh, Peter, please be careful. Man, don't respond the wrong way because this is so much on you, dude. If you screw up, the, the future of Christianity goes down with you. Come on, Peter, you've got to hang in there. Like, can I get some angels around? Come on, how about cheerleaders? Let's go. Peter, you can do this, man. That's not what we find in the Bible, is it? Jesus, absolutely certain. The reason why you're going to turn, when you turn, the reason why you're going to turn is because I'm behind the scenes and I'm before the Father. And the Father always answers my prayers and I pray that your faith would not fail. Guess what? Your faith is not going 
to fail. And that's what's happening in this saving activity of God. That's what brings us to irresistible grace. I'll do this in like 30 seconds or something. Voice and Reich can say, the words themselves are somewhat misleading, this irresistible grace, for they, they do not mean that God will drag us kicking and screaming into his kingdom, nor do they mean that grace is never resisted by us, right? Because it is, all the time. Obviously it is. What they mean is that we do not resist effectively. Or to put it another way around, they mean that when God calls us to faith in Jesus Christ, he calls effectively succeeding in his purpose to save us. The grace of God's calling is overwhelmingly efficacious. If God determines to save us, then guess what? At the end of the day, he will save us. That's a a certainty. That's not a possibility of maybe left up to you and I. That's a certainty from God. R.C. Sproul says, the call referred to an effectual call is not the outward call of the gospel that can be heard by anyone within range of the preaching. The call referred to here is the inward call, the call that penetrates to and pierces the heart, quickening it to spiritual life, right? Most of us can remember that there was a time when we heard the gospel, but it had no effect on us, right? There was a gospel call going out, but there was nothing happening to us. And then something happened, and all of a sudden this message, it it became in living color, and all the words came off the page, and my life came into focus, and it made sense. What happened there? Well, according to Scripture, and God opened Lydia's heart to understand what she was hearing. Remember that in Acts? It was God moving to save somebody, and the rest of the disciples crossed their fingers and hoped that Lydia would complete the deal. No. God began something, and he will finish it. His grace, in that sense, is not resistible. He will finish what he's begun give you this last quote, and I'm going to stop. Boyce and Reichen in their book say, One kind of calling is external, general, and universal. It is an open invitation to all persons to repent of sin, turn to the Lord Jesus Christ, and be saved. The problem with this type of call is that left to ourselves, none of us would ever respond positively. We hear the call, but we turn away preferring our own ways to God. That is why Jesus said, no one can come to me unless the Father who sent me draws him. The other kind of call is internal, specific, and effectual. That is, it not only issues the invitation, but also provides the ability or willingness to respond. It is God drawing to himself or bringing to spiritual life the one who without the call will remain spiritually dead and not far and far from him this is the way jesus called lazarus from the tomb lazarus was dead right remember he was he was stinky dead he wasn't he wasn't dead and twitching god intentionally wanted to make sure there will be no doubt (laughs) this dude is dead there there is no ability in him he is totally dead totally depraved a little different doctrine but lazarus was dead But the call of God created in the dead man life and the ability to respond. This is also how God calls those whom he has foreknown and predestined to salvation. Right? You know what's interesting is when Jesus said, Lazarus, come forth, 
all the dead people didn't come forth, right? Lazarus uniquely was given grace as a dead man to respond to the call of God to life. Irresistible accomplishes effectively what God set out for it to do. All right, let's pray. Father, thank you again for the opportunity to peer into the wonder of who you are. Lord, studying these doctrines through the years, Lord, it has had multiple effects on my soul for which I am so grateful. And Lord, I pray that as we study through, as perhaps for some we introduce the whole counsel of God in these areas, Lord, that that you would affect our souls with this word. You would affect our ability to wake up, face the day, face the people in our lives, face the events in our lives, informed by the God who's at work behind the scenes, fulfilling a purpose that cannot be overthrown, not by us, by anyone else, not by the devil. You alone, God, will accomplish your purpose for the sake of your glory. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen.